Welcome everyone, I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Darren Dessau, Assistant Professor in the Department of Orthopedics at McMaster University. Dr. Dessau was the senior author of the paper titled, Transexemic Acid Administration in Arthroscopic Surgery is a Safe Adjunct to Decrease Postoperative Pain and Swelling, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, which is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome Dr. Dessau and thanks for joining us. Thank you, uh, Dr. Arner, for the invitation, as well as to the Arthroscopy Journal. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is great. First of all, congratulations on a, on a great study. And you have really uh, know how to do these systematic reviews in a very uh, professional way and meta-analyses. So it's always great to read them from your group. So tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this topic. I mean, thank you for that. As you, as you know, over at McMaster, kind of with our Mac Sports Group, we do systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And the idea being to convert these or to at least generate ideas that would lead to large-scale, multi-center, randomized control trials. So constantly in the back burner, there's thought tank of, you know, what could be our next idea and what, what do we do to kind of better uh, what we are doing now and the, the care we offer our patients. And so, you know, it happened to be kind of serendipitous in the fact that, you know, with this constant background machine for systematic reviews and research that we have, we were looking specifically and about to start a trial looking at reducing opioid consumption after arthroscopy surgery. And with that, a few other adjuncts to overall improve the patient experience and to, you know, particularly improve pain in the postoperative period. So there was that, and we were about to launch that study. And at the same time, I had kind of reconnected with orthopedic surgeon and fellow Canadian Jason Shin, who actually also completed his Pitt Sports Medicine Fellowship the year before me. And so we had connected and we're catching up on both personal and professional kind of, you know, updates and in our discussions. And, uh, you know, we had talked about research and the next kind of thing. And, uh, you know, came up as looking at TXA specifically. And then we had discussed a little bit in depth about different ways to better understand this. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we settled on at least starting as a first line with a systematic review. And so from there, you know, we discussed that further, discussed the methodology and kind of the rest of history. Yeah, that's great. It's always fun to be able to catch up with colleagues and do projects like this together. So can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the basics of the mechanism of action or how we think TXA works and a little bit about the history? And it seems like it's a fairly safe drug. I mean, TXA is not new. And for myself particularly, I was familiar with it in the trauma setting. So whether, you know, I currently also do emergency work and serve on the trauma service as well as trauma team. So I'm, I'm certainly familiar with using it in that context and had learned about it at different stages throughout my training. You know, briefly, uh, the mechanism of action is that it's a synthetic molecule. It's supposed to replicate or mimic uh, lysine. And so the way it's supposed to work uh, is to directly or competitively bind uh, lysine binding sites on plasminogen, you know, which, uh, you know, prevents plasminogen from becoming plasmin, which is important in breaking down the clot. So if you're competitively binding this, the idea being that it's not able to activate plasmin, you're not able to break down the clot, and as such, you have less bleeding. That's basically kind of in a nutshell, it's mechanism of action. But the history, um, I thought it was quite interesting, especially as we started to do a little bit more research for this project, was looking at it. It's not new. Again, it was developed usually in kind of like in the early 1960s, but didn't start making its appearance in, in medicine until kind of the early 1990s. And, you know, it first started initially to treat um, you know, heavy menstrual bleeding in females, other patients with, uh, you know, uh, hereditary bleeding disorders, things along that nature. But since then, has had quite a broad scope. It's applied, you know, cardiac surgery, many other surgical fields uh, within orthopedics. Um, it is extended to arthroplasty, particularly the hip and knee, uh, foot and ankle surgery as well, and is slowly starting to 
uh, enter now sports medicine. So the applications are quite wide, particularly in the context of trauma and in and postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, there's actually been shown to be mortality benefit in some studies as well. So it's proposed by the synthetic mechanism to do that, uh, and its applications really seem quite wide. You know, to address your question about safety, you know, the interesting thing is it's, you know, it's not for everyone. Not, you know, right now, the literature at least does not have a lot of information on its application in the pediatric population, for example. Uh, there are certainly contraindications to that. Uh, the list, you know, we can discuss if it's of interest, but there's both contraindications, but also considerations to be to be made given that the fact that it is a synthetic drug and that it is excreted primarily to the kidney. So in patients mainly with renal insufficiency, for example, dosing and other adjustments, if considering using it, uh, are important. That being said, uh, there is no real across the literature documented adverse effect or, or significant complication that has been reported with its use in the current populations that it has been used in. And so I would just say, you know, thinking about using it, although it appears to be safe now, uh, particularly in the short-term use that, that is available in the literature, still think about this and, and approach its use on an individual basis you know, after discussing with the patient and, and, and also your anesthesiologist and internal medicine doctors as needed. Yeah, that's an excellent uh, summary and really a great, great uh, plethora of information there. Can you tell us a little bit about the studies you encountered and basically the quality of some of the studies and the bias and just kind of give us a brief summary of what, what you found in your systematic review and meta-analysis? Yeah, so by design, again, which is, which is usually uh, finalized before we even undertake the study, uh, we aim to include only randomized control trials. So we wanted, although we, you know, broad understanding of where TXA is used in orthopedics as it pertains to arthroscopy surgery, uh, we did still want the highest level of evidence available. What we found, you know, in general is that, first of all, there's not a lot out there. So 71 unique studies addressing TXA in the arthroscopic or sports medicine population at the time that we searched the databases. So that was back in April of 2020. Uh, of that, and applying our, you know, criteria for our specific purpose, uh, we ended up with seven unique randomized control trials. And of that, the majority, four out of those seven, uh, were specifically focused on ACL reconstruction, and then one each in uh, arthroscopic knee surgery for meniscectomy, uh, FAI, and rotator cuff repair. And so, you know, overall, not a lot out there. Uh, there, you know, are starting to touch on the different elements of arthroscopic surgery in sports medicine, but still not a lot within each individual realm. But that being said, and in particular in this study, uh, the studies tended to be of high quality, level one or level two randomized control trials. As part of our methodology, we do always a quality assessment. And as it pertains to randomized control trials, we applied the Cochrane risk of bias tool, version two for it. And so this goes after particular tenants of what's otherwise considered a high quality RCT. Not all RCTs are, are good. And so there's different elements that you look at in terms of allocation of concealment, intention to treat analysis, the randomization procedure, you know, how much uh, is lost to follow up, things like this. And based on all these criteria and the application of this bias tool, uh, we found that by and large, the majority of our studies, essentially all of them, were a minimal uh, bias uh, as it pertains to uh, this assessment. The one study uh, did flag as, uh, you know, moderate to high degree of bias, but that was mainly because that it was not clear in terms of how surgeons were blinded. Um, and so based on the objective application of these uh, metrics, that's why it, it rated that way. However, you know, as we discussed in the paper, uh, you know, how much uh, blinding of surgeons in, in this context uh, and its effect on outcomes is kind of debatable. And so, you know, that's kind of the, if I can say, a, a brief a brief view of the quality and, and, you know, what's out there. 
what our particular paper found is across these seven studies, you know, comparing, and we were able to do a meta-analysis on this, uh, but comparing patients that received TXA from those that didn't, uh, what we found were statistically significant decreases in the visual analog pain score, uh, particularly in the short term. So at the two-week mark, uh, which appeared to confer a benefit up to about six weeks post-surgery, uh, there were decreases in the number of people that required aspiration of joints for uh, swelling or, or post-traumatic hemarthrosis. In certain studies and applications, there were decreases in the reduction of opioid medication across the board, uh, which in those studies were measured as uh, morphine milligram equivalents. Um, when you're looking at outcomes and post-surgical uh, outcomes, especially, again, in the early period within those first six weeks, uh, patients on TXA appear to have better knee range of motion and quadriceps strength in that early period. And interestingly, we found that, you know, across a host of patient-reported outcomes, uh, whether or not someone had TXA didn't appear to affect those in particular. Uh, and those kind of are, are positive findings. What's important to note also uh, from a technical standpoint is that it didn't appear to make any difference with regards to operative time or in an arthroscopic context, what we consider as better visibility or ease of performing the procedure. And most importantly, there were no reported rates of uh, venous embolism, whether by DVT or pulmonary embolism, infection, arthrofibrosis, or any adverse reaction or, or uh, allergic reaction uh, to the medication. Yeah, that's awesome. Appreciate all that uh, complete review. I think that's really interesting regarding the visualization. I mean, it would be nice if we could, you know, see better with arthroscopy, especially if you're doing a cuff or whatever in the beach chair position to be able to keep people's blood pressure a little higher, especially in, in the older folks. So that's great to know. Can you tell us a little bit about your knowledge and what you've kind of read about and used clinically regards to IV versus injection TXA and in different joints and chondrotoxicity and that uh, type of safety profile? Yeah, and I mean, so for those listening, we, we do talk a little bit about the chondrotoxicity profile from uh, limited uh, in vitro studies that exist as opposed to, as it, as it pertains to topical application of TXA on chondrocytes. And there has been some suggestion that uh, direct exposure can be harmful in that context. I, you know, prior to this study and even undertaking it, did not use uh, TXA routinely in my practice and, and at this point still do not routinely use it. What I found and what we found in the paper uh, was that the administration, the root administration of this drug is variable. It can be administered orally, topical injection, and particularly in this paper in the sports medicine context, you know, about 40% of the patients that received TXA received it uh, by way of a topical or intra-articular bolus uh, immediately post-op. 30% or so received it as an IV bolus uh, given one time uh, throughout the procedure, and that time period varied, whether it was prior to tourniquet inflation or just prior to tourniquet deflation, for example. Uh, about 20% or so uh, received a combination of an IV infusion as well as a bolus, again, at different time points, uh, whether pre-op or, or post. And then the remainder, or 10% or so, just under 10, uh, received it only as an IV infusion. So uh, where I use it in my practice, uh, when I do use it, is as a uh, IV bolus uh, just prior to uh, the conclusion of the procedure. Uh, and that's given its other uh, elements in terms of half-life and, and what I'm using it for, the purpose I'm using it for. Uh, but there's so much that uh, needs to be determined in terms of optimal uh, way to administer this and uh, even the dosing. Yeah, that was one question I was going to ask you about the tourniquet. I mean, it doesn't seem like um, from reading your study and others that there's real consensus about timing. If you're going to do it, say, it before and after, if you should do it, you know, certain timing with tourniquet use. Is that kind of what you found as well? We're really not sure 
the best timing with tourniquet use. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think it's fair statement to say that right now it's the application of it and that perioperative period is, is quite variable. Uh, where I'm using it now is at the conclusion of my procedure, say for an ACL, uh, at the time I let down the tourniquet, uh, once tourniquet is down, then uh, the anesthesiologist administers an IV bolus, uh, typically one gram, although it is weight-based after based on our discussion. And uh, that's the time point usually where it, where it shows up in my practice. But again, it's quite variable across uh, different indications and different surgeries in patient populations. Yeah, that's great. Great to know. That was one question I was going to ask you. For ACL, is that your main indication now? Or can you tell us a little bit about some of your partners and colleagues or um, you know, in your experience, uh, when people have anecdotally found it to be helpful uh, beyond ACLs, or you think most people are kind of at at your stage because the literature seems to will be be a little bit over the all over the place regarding its its uh, role. Yeah, it's interesting. Like um, I would say, until uh, I guess the impress notice of this paper uh, went out there, at least in my circle. Uh, I did not hear much about people using TXA at all or even thinking about using it. It's probably the same relative experience I had prior to undertaking the study. Once that paper kind of surfaced, you started to hear kind of one-offs, at least in my experience, of, you know, surgeons in different academic centers as well as community centers using it. And where, you know, from my discussions with these people seemed to be mainly used in was in lower extremity surgery and particularly in the knee. Uh, Oftentimes where there was uh, some open components associated with it, whether it was, a, you know, for example, high tibial osteotomy or tibial tubercle osteotomy, um, multi-ligament reconstruction, and also an ACL population. I didn't see it too much used in hip, for example, or upper extremity. Uh, there were some uh, people that were using it, again, in the foot and ankle context, uh, but again, that is to pertain to whether or not there was an open element to the surgery as opposed to purely arthroscopic. You know, that's kind of what I would say in that regard. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So can you tell us, since you're in Canada, obviously cost-effectiveness, we can learn a lot from your system. Can you tell us, you know, regionally or or North America and different countries, does it seem like certain people have adopted TXA more? And and you did mention some cost-effectiveness in your study. Can you tell us a little bit about those two topics? Yeah, so what's interesting is, as I kind of talked about here, I started to hear more and more about one-off or more anecdotal experience of uh, surgeons' uh, use with TXA once, you know, this information started to become kind of more public knowledge post-study. But what I found that was interesting is in our actual study, uh, there was no North American representation. So it appears that across the indications, whether it was the ACL, meniscus, FAI, rotator cuff repair that was looked at in our particular study, surgeons uh, were using this around the world, essentially. There were studies that came from Taiwan, Italy, Turkey, India, New Zealand, Spain. So everywhere except a real North American presence. And so um, what I found is that, you know, people are starting to use it more in that regard. And I think before it makes it mainstream here, we still need, you know, a higher level trial uh, looking at our patient population and the unique, unique aspects to that piece. But that being said, it is pretty wide, widely applicable. With regards to the cost effectiveness piece, which is very important, um, and this is part of the reason that, you know, I've started using it again on a case-by-case basis at this point and more just for uh, anecdotal experience is that the cost is actually pretty low. So at least in Canada, based on our kind of metrics and information, it comes out to $40 Canadian or so per gram by, by our estimates. And that's kind of the, the number we quote in our paper uh, using, you know, conversion to U.S. That's even less, right? That's 30 bucks or so a gram. And so very, very minimal uh, cost to the overall kind of care 
uh, and then you have to frame that within the context of the potential benefit that it's aiming to address. So in our case, particularly in arthroscopic surgery, hemarthrosis and postoperative pain and swelling are the big drivers that we are you know, hoping to tackle because especially in our current healthcare environments, we have limited access to admit patients. These are typically all done as outpatient surgery. And so inadequate pain control uh, can be a reason for people to represent to the emergency department, uh, increased uh, resources associated with those visits and potential hospital stays. Um, you know, you have things like hemarthrosis. And so if this is able to make a significant reduction in that, uh, you could potentially impact, you know, the number of pain medication and the types of pain medication that is used, the need for aspirations and the complications that can happen with prolonged hemarthrosis, like pooling of blood as a driver for, say, septic arthritis, for example, or arthrofibrosis and things along those natures. So very, very minimal cost. Uh, incurred. Um, again, thinking that most doses, at least in the IV setting, are roughly around one gram uh, from the literature and also what I've experienced in kind of my practice and those around us for a potential huge cost savings uh, should there be any complications as a result of, of bleeding, pain, and or swelling. Yeah, that's a, a big driver, I think, of its use, and that's great to know. One question I had, you mentioned some of the risks and, and benefits and everything. Do you come across any data or any knowledge that you have regarding, you know, someone that has a history of AFib or uh, his history of DVT, I guess it'd be older patients with rotator cuffs, or maybe some people are doing total knees. Is there any contraindication that you found for that population? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, the contraindications, uh, again, it's not an exhaustive list by any means, but, but typically those that have a history of a thromboembolic event in the past, certainly I would not uh, at this point recommend you administer TXA in any setting. And we quote other, you know, potential contraindications uh, that we're aware of being including, you know, abnormalities in patients with regards to color vision. We talk about, uh, for example, you know, having to adjust the dose if you're going to consider using it in patients with renal insufficiency. But what I'm aware of outside of sports medicine or arthroscopic surgery is the literature that it looks at the arthroplasty population in particular. And these are generally older patients with more comorbidities. And generally speaking, there are a few trials and, and, and studies of different levels of evidence out there that have suggested that even in this population or what you'd say a high-risk kind of baseline population from a comorbidity standpoint, TXA even in this population seems to be beneficial and does not seem to exacerbate or, or cause things such as venous thromboembolism you know, or ischemic events, whether it's stroke or MIs. Uh, or transient ischemic attacks. It doesn't seem to be associated with any of that. The big kind of warning or caution that does come out in the different fields outside of sports medicine is that one, you know, be cognizant of the fact that most of it, over 95% of this drug being synthetic is excreted essentially unchanged by the body and it's done so by the kidneys. So be particularly attentive to patients with renal conditions. Uh, would be the number one thing. And then, you know, what I would say just in general is, you know, for us, even though it's outpatient, elective surgery in the sports medicine context, and to, you know, it's increasing now in spine surgery as well as in arthroplasty for moving towards an outpatient setting. Still, it's important that patients are, you know, assessed and undergo, you know, preoperative consults, whether by anesthesia or internal medicine or both, and that you kind of approach this and its use on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, great summary as as always. Appreciate that. As we start wrapping up here, can you tell us, you know, there's a lot of missing pieces to this puzzle. Tell us what you think in arthroscopic surgery, you know, you kind of alluded to it, what we're lacking, what kind of trials, what do we really need to know before people are going to adopt it? Do you think this will be, say, in 10 years, kind of standard of care? Kind of what do you think we need to do? And, and what do you think uh, you see the future with TXA and specifically our sports surgery? 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard, hard obviously, to predict the future based on, you know, what one of the good things about a systematic review, and I know there's, you know, people that can criticize them at many different levels, is that, you know, consider the quality of the studies that went into it. And so in this particular one, although there were seven studies, these were all level one, two randomized control trials. So at least as it pertains to this topic and the literature that's currently available, it is uh, what I would say the most kind of thorough and high level evidence that we have at least to guide this. Uh, what you know, you often have to remember is that with evidence-based medicine, there's the research piece, there is the surgeon piece, our clinical experience piece, which shouldn't be undervalued as well, as well as what the patient wants. And so all of these have to kind of meld uh, together. What we saw here, like I talked about, was that across all you know fields of arthroscopic surgery and sports medicine, there were only 71 unique studies. And although the seven trials that we included were relatively you know high quality and minimal risk of bias. There were still small sample size individual studies altogether, right? anywhere from 45 to 70 or so patients. And so I think, you know, first of all, it's important that we continue to work towards, you know, doing larger studies, uh, multi-center studies um, that are large numbers of patients that are powered to kind of go after the results that we want. You mentioned earlier that we weren't able to see a difference between TXA and, say, various patient-reported outcome measures. That could be true, and that TXA and the dosing and the administration itself isn't enough to actually cause a meaningful difference in that regard, but it could also be the fact that the studies individually were underpowered to detect differences in those tests, for example. So what we need is, I think, a call for greater collaboration and to work in that way. What we do see is that there's some fields of surgery that are being used, ACL, meniscus work, FAI, and rotator cuff repair, for example, uh, we should look to expand that within our kind of full gamut of surgery and offerings that we do in arthroscopic surgery, as well as increase the total numbers in those uh, realms as well. And I think we need to, uh, you know, work towards getting the other elements of evidence-based medicine, right? We continue to, to build a research portfolio. Uh, time will tell in our discussions uh, with patients in terms of how they prefer uh, to go with this, whether or not they do or not. And then we need that surgeon experience, particularly those from our more clinically experienced ones. So right now, there is no consensus out there, uh, at least that we could find, on whether or not TXA should be even uh, used in the arthroscopic population. Most people are using it off-label and in, uh, you know, one-off cases, in particular surgical uh, procedures. And so I think we need, as an orthopedic sports medicine community, need to come together and, uh, you know, get an idea of where everyone uh, opinion stance on this topic and try to arrive at some sort of consensus on preferred routes of administration, dosing, indicated procedures, and other things along that nature. Yeah, that's excellent, Darren. Thanks for um, your information and, you know, exhaustive uh, discussion about this literature is so helpful. So appreciate your time and uh, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. And our problem. And please uh, give my regards to everyone at Crosby Journal as well as back home at uh, Pitt. Take care. Thanks a lot. Dr. Desa's article titled Transexemic Acid Administration in Arthroscopic Surgery is a Safe Adjunct to Decrease Postoperative Pain and Swelling. A systematic review and meta-analysis is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal.